I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I hope you've been blessed. If you've been regularly with us, you've been blessed with our exposition and study so far of Ephesians. I know I certainly have. If it's your first time with us, um, I want to welcome you here and let you know that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. For the most part, we are looking at expository preaching, taking a passage, opening it up, explaining it, and applying it into our lives. I told my wife every week, I think I say this, but Ephesians is just really blowing me away. I, I thought I knew the book well. I took a class in seminary on it. I translated the whole thing from Greek. We studied it in an exegesis class years ago. had all these notes. And now as I dig in and get ready to preach it, every week I'm surprised that it's so much deeper. It's so much grander. There's so much more there than I thought was there before. And I hope you're feeling the same way. And I think we can all say that a book like this can really change our lives as Christians, how we think, how we live, how we live out the faith before Christ. We're in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we've been looking at this prayer that Paul prays. We're going to pick up today in verses 1, 18, and 19, but I'm going to read the whole paragraph to you, and I want you to see his prayer. His prayer here is for something. It's for believers to have a greater knowledge of God. He said that at the end of verse 17. He prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom for a greater knowledge of God. And then today, he's going to say what that is in verses 18 and 19. So I've entitled the message, A Prayer for Knowing Doctrinal Truth. Let me start and just read from verse 15 onward. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Lord, I do ask that you would help us to see the truth in this passage. There is there's something that Paul's praying for here, and we need to understand it. We need to know what it is so we can do it, so we can learn more about you, so that it can impact our lives. Pray that you would give me clarity, give me uh, the right words to say as I explain this passage, and, and I pray that you would apply it in each of our hearts. Help us not to leave just thinking that we learned something, but help us to leave this place today knowing and doing something different because of this verse. I pray that you would do that for us today in Jesus' name and by his power. Amen. It was the great reformer John Calvin who started his systematic theology, what he called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, with a famous saying, a famous sentence. He said, true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. 
the knowledge of God and of ourselves. In other words, there's two things we really need to know to really understand Scripture, to understand ourselves, to understand God, who God is, and who we are. And all theological doctrines connect to those two. Really, they all connect to God, and that helps us understand where we are. But knowing God is just not about knowing his character. That's often how we're taught, and that's a good thing. We need to know more of God's character. Many of us don't know enough about God's character. But it's not just who he is, but also what he's done. We need to know something about what God has done. We should study who he is, and we should study what he's done. Knowing God is about those two things. And the same with Christ, the same with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter which person of the Trinity that we're looking at. Who are they? And what have they done according to Scripture? Christians today don't know who God is and they don't know what God has done for them. And this creates a lot of confusion. It creates confusion in their own lives. It creates confusion in their family and their marriages. It creates confusion in churches. It creates confusion in, in nations and countries and the mission field and evangelism. Christians don't know who God is and what he's done. And Paul's praying here that the Ephesian Christians and us today even, that we would know who God is and what he's done. We need to understand the doctrines, the teachings of Scripture. There's been a movement, and it's really more of the last hundred years or so, where we've gone away from Scripture, we've gone away from thinking, we've gone away from using our minds to worship God. And it's called anti-intellectualism. It's saying that our intellects aren't what God cares about. He cares about our emotions. He cares about our feelings. And so the worship service has become an emotional outpouring. They become geared around that and to get you emotionally worked up. Now emotions do, godly emotions do come from a right worship of God. But they must be first in the mind. First truth comes into the mind and then it gets expressed in our life through our will and through our affections or emotions. Anti-intellectualism says that we need to water down the doctrines in Scripture, that we need to believe what modern Christians think, that we, we can't even take in all of Scripture. Many times we're told we can't take it in, and it's really unimportant to work so hard at it. John MacArthur responds to this in a sermon. He says, genuine Christianity is not anti-intellectual. We do not believe that the mind is a detriment to spirituality. In fact, he says, we believe true spirituality involves being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're sanctified by the truth, and truth is something we apprehend primarily with our minds. Emotions are important. Our desires are important. But first, truth has to come into our minds, and then it can be expressed in our life. We've seen truth already displayed in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The first 14 verses dealt with the great doctrines of salvation. Paul taught us about election. He, pro- he taught us about predestination, about adoption, about redemption, and sealing by the Spirit. These are not feelings that he's talking about. He's talking about doctrine. He's talking about what God has done for us, what the Father has done, what the Son has done, what the Spirit has done. Now he moves into a, a more typical prayer for Paul to start his letters with. But it's a great prayer. And what is he praying for? That we would understand God more. That we would know more doctrine and it would affect our lives. So in 15 through 17, he begins a great prayer. And he, he says that he gives thanks for 
the faith and the love of the Ephesian believers. Then he asked God to give a, a spirit. I think the Holy Spirit there should be capitalized in our translation. They would give the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so they would have a deeper knowledge of him. Now all believers already have the spirit. All believers have the Spirit immediately when they're saved, but he's praying that they would have a filling of the Spirit, not for prophecies and speaking in tongues, but so that they could understand God's truth, God's Word. And he goes on to explain in the rest of the paragraph what he's talking about here. But he prays that they would get more of the Spirit, like he does later in in 5.18, they would be filled by the Spirit, so they could understand God and what God is doing in salvation. So 18 and 19, he's going to give us the content of his prayer. What is it he's praying for? What is it he's hoping the Spirit will do in those believers? What should we pray for that God would do in us and our minds as well? And we see that the content here is Paul praying the Holy Spirit would reveal three doctrinal truths to believers. If you're taking notes, it's going to be three doctrinal truths take a bit to get there because we want to deal with the first part of verse 18. But there's three doctrinal truths that believers should understand. They should know. They're not automatically given all of that understanding. When you're saved, you don't know all the things right away. That's what growth in godliness is about. You learn it. It changes your desires. It changes your emotions. You live it out. You learn some more. Repeat the process every day, multiple times a day. That's what growth is, growing in godliness, maturity. So three doctrinal truths so that we might live a life of godliness which is glorifying to God. That's the whole message of Ephesians, really, in a nutshell here. What he's praying for, he's going to do the rest of the book. First three chapters, doctrine. Last three chapters, how to live it out. So that's his prayer. Let's begin now in verse 18. And he's still continuing with his request. And he says, in the NASB, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now right off the bat, we run into a big interpretive issue. And you'll notice probably in your translation that the first few words are in italics. The NASB takes it as an additional part of Paul's prayer. I pray that you would get the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I pray that you will have an enlightening of the eyes of your heart. The question becomes, how do we connect verse 18 to the one before it? When you study a passage, you should ask, how do things connect? How do things fit together? And when there's italics, that means the translators had to guess. It's an educated guess. It's a studied guess. They've worked through the different options, but there's six different views on this. I won't bore you with all the grammar. But the first word here in Greek I'll just tell you real quickly on that grammatical aspect. It's in the perfect tense. If you've ever heard about the Greek perfect tense, it means that it's a completed action. It's been perfected. It's been completed. And it has effects that last after it's been completed. So to say that Paul is asking, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, really doesn't get into the original Greek and translate it as well as it could be translated. I think the ESV is closer on this. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. How are already having them enlightened? I pray that the Spirit would be given to you and you've already had the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
a translation that's a free internet translation done by scholars at Dallas called NET. Translate it, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Because it's passive. It's a perfect passive. In other words, he's not praying for something to happen to them. He's saying something's already happened. I pray that God will give you more of his spirit and something's already happened to you. You've already been enlightened and I pray you will get more of it and be enlightened even more. At the moment of salvation, in other words, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. You could see the truth of the gospel. You could see Christ. It's already been done. And I pray that God will continue to give you more illumination, more enlightenment. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says it like this. Paul, Paul writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we were saved, God gave us spiritual light so we could see the truth. We had scales on our eyes. We were blinded. Blinded by the world, blinded by our sin, blinded by Satan. And Paul says, having already been enlightened, I know God's going to answer my prayer request because he's already started the work in each one of you, he's saying. He's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation because that's what God's already doing in their life. He enlightened them from the point they were saved. And Paul says, let them continue to be enlightened, God. Please continue to show them truth. By the way, he's going to write truth so they can just look back at his letter and continue to see the truth of God's word. So if we reworded the whole couple of verses there, we could say it like this. I know that you're saved, Paul says. I know that you're saved. I know that you've had the scales lifted from your eyes and you've been given spiritual glasses to see things rightly. And because of this, Paul's saying, I can now pray that you will fully understand and see the light of God's glorious truth. You've got a new outlook. You've got the Spirit in you. And I pray that God would give you more truth, more wisdom, more truth as you look at His revelation, at His Scripture. Now he prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. It's a very unique phrase. It's, it's very poetic. The eyes of your heart. Now in a modern American, modern English, modern Western civilization, we think of the heart as the place of emotions. You fall in love from your heart. You express things from your heart. But to the ancient Hebrews, and the apostles are Hebrew, they're going to write in the same sense, even though it's in Greek, they're going to take theology from the Old Testament and bring it over into the New. The heart is not the place of your emotions. That, that's the guts in the Old Testament. Your, your intestines. So whenever Solomon is writing to his bride in Song of Solomon, you know, he, he says all kinds of strange things, like your teeth look like sheep and your hair look like goats. And, and he talks about love from the guts, from the intestines. And often in the Old Testament, love is... You know, I, I love you with all my intestines. Now we say, I love you with all my heart. But no, the emotions were down here. You felt them down here. The heart in the ancient Hebrew mind, uh, the ancient Hebrew is your mind, the inner self, your thought life. So it's not primarily about the emotional life. Your heart is your mind, your thought life. And we see this, you, you've read throughout scripture. People have a dull heart. Does that mean they can't feel? 
Not so much. It's that their mind isn't right and they are seeking to please themselves. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament in Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah was appointed? God didn't send Isaiah on a mission where everybody's going to listen and be happy. He says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will. And then God says, you ought to go pronounce prophecy of judgment. Jesus pulls out this scroll in Nazareth and he's going to read it. And he says from Isaiah 6.10, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but not perceive. Talking about Israel here. For the heart of this people has become dull. Not talking about their feelings so much as their mind has become hardened, dull. With the ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart. So the heart is the place of understanding. Then they would return, and I would heal them. They'd rejected God, God sending a prophet to pronounce judgment. Jesus quotes that because people are hard-hearted. Their hearts are hard against God. Their minds are set against God. So now Paul's reminding them, really, it's already been done for them. That the eyes of their heart have been enlightened. We cannot understand God's truth without God's light shining on our hearts, shining on our minds. You can't. You can try as an unbeliever. Maybe you did read some scripture. You got a few nuggets. You can't understand what God inspired it to do. Not until he's given you the author himself, the Holy Spirit, in you. The Holy Spirit enlightens our mind, spiritually enlightens our mind. It's the only way of knowing what God has done for us in Christ is to have first our mind enlightened. 1 Corinthians 2. Natural man does not accept the things of God. He's not even able to accept them. He doesn't want to accept them, and he's not able to accept them. God's got to shine his light. That happens in regeneration. The Spirit comes in and changes your heart, a new heart, born again. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, The Lord... The Lord must first enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Or else, however precious the truth, and however clearly it may be stated in Scripture, we shall never be able to apprehend it. Sure, an unbeliever can get some general truth, but you can't apprehend it. You can't truly understand why it's there, what God intended it for, and what you're supposed to do with it. And so Paul is saying, your, your heart's already been enlightened, your, your mind, you can think properly. And, and we might ask, let me see your truth, God, if we were to pray this for ourselves. Let me see your truth, O oh God, so that I can, can have your light shine upon my heart and my thinking. You've already done it, Lord, when you saved me. Continue to do it. Continue to show me truth. I need to see more truth in God's word to grow. Remember, milk is for the infants. Meat is. Meat is for the adult. You need to see the truth. That's the meat. So he goes on. Now he picks up, so that you will know. So that you will know. He's going back to the Spirit. The Spirit will be given to you. Wisdom and revelation. So that you will know. Paul does not pray. He does not pray that we should feel more here, does he? Is he saying, so you can feel more? I pray that the Spirit would come to you so you could feel more. Uh, I, I pray that the, the Spirit comes so you could, uh, you know, cry more. Crying sometimes is a godly response. First, he wants their minds to be focused and changed on who God is and what God has done. Christianity is about thinking thoughts after God. He's about, 
thinking thoughts after him so that it comes into our mind, it changes our will, it changes our affections. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards had a lot to say about the mind, will, and affections. It has to be in that order too in Scripture. Your mind is changed, your desires, your will is changed, then your emotions, your affections are changed. They all got to be though in line with Scripture. So that's what he's praying for. Let's look now at the three doctrinal truths. You've already got the Holy Spirit as a believer. From the moment you're saved. Paul prays that you will get more of revelation shown to you, not through prophecy, through the word. And first of all, he wants you to see God's work in the past. God's work in the past. And we can only look forward in hope because of what God has done for us in the past. He wants you to see something about salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology. It's called the doctrine of soteriology. It is a huge, important, vital doctrine for us to learn about as Christians. And you know, most Christians, myself for many years when I was first saved, have not been taught much about soteriology, what God has done to save us. We know if you're truly saved, you know about Christ, you know about the cross, but, but not to the extent that Scripture speaks of it. Who can ever master that? And how about these doctrines Paul's already covered? Election, predestination. How long were you a Christian before you ever heard those terms and they're right here in Scripture? Paul wants to teach us what God's done for us in the past. So he's going to, with these three things, each one starts with a what? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That's God's work in the past. The hope of his calling. God's calling. Now hope, hope in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's not I hope I make it to heaven. It's not like that. It's not, you know, I've been a good person and I just hope I get there. No, that's not what hope is. Hope is a certainty. It's a certainty. It's something you look forward to. So the idea of hope in the Greek here is a looking forward with confident, confident expectation. You surely know it's going to be there. Well, that's kind of the prideful, the Roman Catholic Church said, uh, in the counter-reformation. See, the reformers said, we can know we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And we can know that God's going to persevere us. And the Catholics said, that's really prideful. Who can know? Who can know? Who can have that kind of hope? You just, maybe someday you'll make it. No, the Bible says we do have hope. Because it's not based on us, it's based on Christ. We do have hope. Over and over it says this. Titus 2.13 Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's not maybe He'll come, I hope He comes. He is the blessed hope. He will return. Titus 3.7 So that being justified by His grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a confident hope that you will have eternal life if you're justified by His grace. That's what it rests on. And that's certain. If, if God has justified you, that's actually already been accomplished. It's not maybe. It's not, I, I wonder if God will actually save me or not. If you've been justified, you can look forward with a confident hope. Eternal life, Christ's return, the kingdom, eternity with him on the new earth. Colossians, which is kind of a parallel book to Ephesians, says it like this, Colossians 1.5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, 
of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. It's part of the gospel to have hope, hope of eternal life. Christ said, trust in me, believe in me, drink of this well, he told the woman, and you'll never thirst again. It's eternal life he's talking about. That's the hope. The hope is based on, though, here in this text, it's the hope of his calling, God's calling. God's effectual calling. Some have called it God's irresistible grace. It's when God summons a person, divinely summons them. God the Father calls out to them spiritually. You do you not hear God's voice calling you. A person is hearing the gospel preached, or they're reading it, or they're reading their Bible, listening to a sermon online, watching a YouTube video where they're preaching the word. That's what they're hearing. But God has an effectual call on the heart. And it's a divine summons. And then the Spirit comes and regenerates their heart. That's God's calling. Then they can understand the gospel. Then they have the Spirit to, to exercise faith. They have the Spirit, Spirit to help them repent now. God's effectual calling. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Whoever he predestined, he's going to call. Those whom he called, he also justified. Romans 8, 28 through 30. There's a chain there. It's a golden chain of redemption. It's what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father's got to draw them. No one. Not you, not me. Not the most holy person, self-righteous person in the world. Not the Apostle Paul. Not the Apostle Peter. No one, Jesus says, can come unless God does something first. He's got to draw them. That's effectual calling. Without God's calling, we would be lost forever. All mankind would be lost. It's only pride that, that sometimes makes us reject God's calling in, in our minds. As Christians, we look back and say, No, I did that first. I did that first. But it was God calling first, the Bible says. What was God calling first? In our hearts, changing our hearts. He says in Ezekiel, he's going to send his spirit on his people. He's going to give them a new heart so they can believe, so they can follow his statutes. We're spiritually blind before that. We're spiritually blind. We're not able to come. 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're not able to come to Christ. We're not able to because we're blind. We don't even see Anything special about Christ, the gospel, salvation? We're just blind to it. Why, why won't that person listen when you're talking to them about the gospel? Well, you should keep trying, but they're blind until God does that work. It's not up to us to figure out when God's going to do the work, if God's going to do the work. He just tells us to go tell everyone. But God hits his prerogative if he will call them. And if he does, they have hope because he has called them. Not only are we enable, but the Bible also says, that we don't want to come. Mankind is totally unwilling to come. That's total depravity. So we have a total inability. We're not able. And then we don't accept the things of God. Only the person with the Spirit accepts the things of God. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things of God. So we're not able. We don't want to come. But God calls. God changes hearts. God enlivens us. He makes us born again. John 3, that's what, John, that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You must be born again. 
Nicodemus says, I don't get it. Jesus says, you should get it because it's in the scriptures, it's in the Bible. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. You must be born again. You must have a new heart. Then he says, the spirit comes and the spirit goes where it wishes. Like the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't control the spirit. It's God's spirit. The Holy Spirit doing God's work. So God's calling is 100% work of God. And it's linked to the predestination that we saw in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, 4, 5, predestination. It's all linked up there. So what's Paul saying here? I pray that you would get the Spirit, that you would know, based on God's sovereignty, based on God's calling, you have hope. If you've been called, you have hope. Hope of eternal life. Of course, you have to have faith. Of course, you have to repent. But Paul's not giving us a systematic theology in three or four words. He's summarizing the hope of God's calling. It rests upon God. He's praying that believers ought to know about God's sovereignty. That's an important doctrine. You don't need to be a Christian for 10, 20 years before you hear about God's sovereignty. These were a few years a Christian in Ephesus, maybe five, six, seven years. They already know about it. Paul's really just praying that they would know more about it. Does doctrine matter? Does doctrine matter? Paul says it does. I pray, God, that you would show them about your calling and how it gives them hope. How it gives them hope. Doctrine matters. Scripture teaches doctrine. And so we have to ask as we look at this first point, now that we've been called, if you're a believer, you've been called, you have a hope to look forward to, are you living like it now? That's the application. Are you living like it? Now he's going to really flush this out in chapter 4. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. But I'm going to go ahead and mention the application now, and then we'll just do it again in more detail when we get to chapter 4. The doctrine is, you have a hope because God has called you, if you're a believer. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He mentions calling twice there. You have a calling and you need to walk worthy in the same manner in which you have been called. You need to live it out. You have a hope of a calling and it's not just some doctrine that you learn and you fall away on a shelf. Something that Paul's praying that they would realize and learn more about and it would change the way they live. It would make them want to be more godly. It would make them want to grow in the faith. To live a pure life. To be obedient to God's word. To love the Lord so much and thank him for what he's done. And cause us to be faithful to him as we live it out. We are looking forward to Christ's return. But how many times is that hope mentioned in scripture to call us to live a more godly life? Even Jesus says, be ready for my return. Don't be like these folks that don't have their lamps ready and lit. Don't be like this guy who buried his money in the ground because he was too scared. Be ready. Have a hope based on the calling that God has already called you. Be ready to live a holy life before the Lord. doesn't save you, but you're already saved. Now live out God's calling for you. Number two, the second doctrine. So the first doctrine is God's work in the, in the past. God's work in the past, soteriology. Now he's going to look at God's work in the future. God's work in the future. It's a point touching on the doctrine of the end times. 
Now, it's not all the end times information here, but he's just summarizing really what's coming in the future. And he's, he's focused on what God is getting here. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So we have a hope based on something God's done in the past. But now he says, God has an inheritance coming to him in the future. It's not our inheritance here. I think the NASB gets it right. Most translations, it's, it's his inheritance in the saints. It's not our inheritance. It's already been discussed, our inheritance previously in chapter 1. This is God's inheritance. God's going to inherit the saints. In other words, believers belong to him. You belong to him if you're a believer. You're his. You're his inheritance. You're something he's going to receive at a certain point in the future. It's like an earthly inheritance is given when a person dies. Well, no one's dying in the future. Christ has already died. But there is an inheritance coming when Christ returns to the earth. His inheritance in the saints. You're bought with a price that's already been paid. That inheritance will come later. What's that based on? How could God love us? We're sinners. We're sinners. You really think, you know, some commentators say, well, look at how much God thinks of us. He's going to inherit us. Look how special we are. It's not in us. Paul's going to make that real clear in chapter 2. It's not anything found in us. It's based on what God has already done and based on Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in Christ. It's all about being in Christ in chapter 1, 3 through 14. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And it's also what God has done. He's called He's predestined, he's justified, and he will glorify. We're God's inheritance. We've been bought with a price. He predestined to salvation a people in Jesus Christ, his son. He's continuing to make them into a kingdom, Revelation 5.10, into a kingdom and priests to himself. Why? Jesus says, so they may reign with me upon the earth. That's the inheritance. God for loved a people for his own possession. It's out of God's love. It's, it's God himself. Now God makes us holy so that we can live with him. It's not like he thinks we're, we're trash or something. He loves us. He cares for us. But we shouldn't think we're so special. We've done something to earn this inheritance that God's going to get. No, God is transforming us to be holy. We are rather passive. I mean, we should be active in our sanctification, but it's God working through us. Peter picks this up, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. Now, this is a verse that described Israel. Now he's applying it to the church. Not that the church is Israel, but there are certain truths that come across and apply to God's people no matter what age. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're a people for God's own. He's going to claim you and he's going to inherit you for you once were not a people but now you are the people of god there's the people of god in the old testament israel now there's the people of god in the new testament the church we're all the people of god and he's going to inherit the people of god when he comes back and peter goes on to talk about living a holy life because of that again a knowledge that should bring practical results in our lives we've got to live this out we're God's inheritance. How do you live as God's inheritance? You're owned by God, and he's coming back to give you a new body 
fully claim you in that sense, how do you live that out? Well, you live a holy life before him. You, 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 you strive to pursue holiness. That's what the word saints means. You know when he says saints here? God's not coming back to, to inherit little statues that people pray to. You know, my, my neighbor's got this little statue of a saint in her yard. He's not coming back to inherit those. That's not what he's talking about with saints. Those are idols. He's talking about inheriting believers. All the believers that have ever existed God is going to inherit them. Holy ones. Hagios. Holy ones. They're holy. Well, I don't feel very holy today. Well, God says you are holy. Positionally. Because you're in Christ. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God says. And he says, believers are saints. And he's going to inherit them. Look back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians. To the saints who are at Ephesus. To the saints. They weren't perfect. He's not talking about anything they're doing. He's saying, you've been saved by Christ. You are positionally holy. Now I'm actually going to make you holy throughout your life and then bring you home one day where you'll be perfectly holy to be with me. These are believers. The saints are believers. Don't think these are people that you put on a necklace and pray to. These are believers throughout church history. And for Paul, it was the Ephesians he's writing to. We are saints if we are in Christ today. Being holy means dedicated and consecrated to the service of God. That's a believer. You should be living that out. Dedicated. Dedicated. Not saints in heaven someday, but saints on the earth, he says. We must live like we are saints of God's inheritance. Live it out. Live a holy life. Live a whole, and if you sin, you bring it before him. First John 1, 9, you confess your sins. He's faithful. He's righteous to cleanse you, to forgive you because of the work Christ has already done. Too many believers today live like the world. I'm saved now. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to live like the world. I can do anything. Paul says, no, may it never be. Don't go sin all the more because you say you have God's grace already on you. We've got to focus on on the future. We've got to look for eternity. We're looking to eternal life with God. You think you can just live however you want right now in this life? That's very displeasing to God. And it can get to the point in a person's life where Paul even says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Not because you messed up today and repented, but you continue on in sin. Examine yourself. We're saints. We're saints. We ought to be thinking about eternity. With God. And when he comes back to inherit us. Jonathan Edwards said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Just put a stamp right there so every time I look through it, I see eternity in everything I do. Second Corinthians 4.18 We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're going to pass away. Things which are not seen are eternal. So if you can see it now, it's going to pass away. It's temporal. But if it's not seen, that's eternal. It's going to last forever. God's going to come back. He's going to inherit his saints. And he's going to bring them into his eternal kingdom. Thirdly, the third doctrinal truth. Doctrine matters. Paul wants them to know certain doctrines better. To know God better through these doctrines. So we look to God's work in the past. We look to God's work in the future. Now Paul brings it to the present. To the present in verse 19. It's all about the present. What's God doing right now in your life? 
He saved you in the past. He's going to inherit you in the future. Right now, what's he doing? What's he doing in the lives of each believer? Verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power? What is right now? Present tense, the surpassing greatness of his power. It's about God's power working in the present. And it's so great. It's great in magnitude, Paul says. It's a surpassing greatness of his power. He's just using the biggest words he can find in the language to talk about God's power. How do you talk about something that's infinite? You can't. You just you use the best words you can to express how wonderful it is. And he uses the word for power here, dunamis. Dunamis. Eventually, later, we'll, we'll bring the word into English as dynamite because it's very powerful. Don't think dynamite here. It's not like God's power explodes or anything. But it's such a powerful word and it's expressed in such a way that we use it later in the English language to say dynamite. But this is extremely powerful, surpassing greatness. And it's just a general word for power. He's not getting real specific. He's about to. But right here, surpassing greatness of his power. God is powerful. God is working right now in your life. And it's mentioned multiple times, this word for power. It means power, might, strength, capability. What theolo- theological doctrine is this? It's theology proper. God, who has all the power. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. God's omnipotence. It's one of his attributes. God is all-powerful. When you study the doctrines of God, you come across omnipotence. He, there's omniscience. God's all-knowing. And there's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. And that's what Paul is saying here. Surpassing greatness. I pray that you would know how great and powerful God is. Doctrine matters. He wants believers to know. How, how great is God? Well, Scripture says, "By our God, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That's how powerful He is. He can do whatever He wants. Now, it's always good. It's always right. That's how powerful God is. Daniel 4 says, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Whatever he wants to do in heaven, whatever he wants to do on the earth, that's what he does. He's that powerful. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can even question God and ask, what have you done? He's that powerful. That's the kind of power, Paul says, toward us who believe. It's toward believers. All of that power is toward believers. Yeah, and not in judgment. We often think of God's power as judgment. But God's power is also blessing to those who believe. Not to the world, he's not giving them power, but he gives power to those who believe, those who trust in Christ for salvation. It's available to all believers. Now remember in Ephesus, what's going on? We read in Acts on the first sermon in Ephesus. What's happening? The temple of Artemis is there. The greatest temple in the Greek world. Everyone's coming there to worship Artemis, this goddess that's supposed to bless you. And remember, magic was a problem there. They burned all these magical books in Acts when they got converted. And it was worth a lot of money when they burned them. Because you could go look at the statue of Artemis, and she had these inscriptions on her. And then you could buy this little idol, and you could just read those little magical inscriptions. And there was all these books explaining what they were. That's evil. That's pagan. That's satanic. 
Now you're a new believer in Christ, you burn that stuff, but it's still out there. It's in your society. It's all around you, maybe in your own house. Maybe some of your family members, your mom and dad. What do you do? And he says, I I pray that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power and it's toward those who believe. It's more powerful than all of that stuff. He's going to cover that in the rest of the book. The authorities and dominions and powers. God's more powerful than all that. This is not power to heal. Not power to raise the dead. It's not power to do miracles. That's not the kind of power. That power was found in Christ and the apostles. Nothing, nobody else in Scripture and the New Testament is said to raise the dead, do miracles, and heal people. Many professing Christians today are like those in Ephesus. They're, they're looking for other ways to get power. It's trying to listen to what's out there. Buying little trinkets, good luck charms. Reading books that say that God is saying strange things and giving power. Not to mention all the witchcraft that is so popular in our world today. No, God is saying he gives you power. Paul's saying, I pray that God would give you more of that so we can live for him. What do we need power for? We need power not to sin. We're now able not to sin. Not 100% of the time because nobody can do that. But we're now able to deny sin. We're no longer slaves to it when we need power for that. And we need power to fight off the devil. And we need power to resist the temptations of the world. That's going to be the armor of God he talks about in Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God. That's God's power. It's his armor. You can fight against the devil. You're not going to beat the devil. He'll be beaten when Christ returns. That's not the point. But you can stand firm and not be moved back. God's power does that. It's power to resist the evil, the sin. You can do it. And he's praying that you would know that and you would understand that God is doing that right now. You've got to read scripture. You've got to learn from it, understand what kind of power is being discussed. Now he's going to explain it with this last phrase. It's in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Paul loves these in Ephesians, just of this, of this, of this. All these words are just other Greek words to describe power. We try to vary them up in English. It's a difficult little phrase to translate. They're all really power. You could say, according to the power of the power of his power. But if we study these out, we do a word study. Which are fun to do. You get to look and see how specific the Spirit inspired Paul to write. The first one translated working in English. That's energeia. Energy is where we get our English term from, energeia. It's, it's action. It's working out. God's power working here in operation, in action. And then it says, of the strength. Strength in English, kratos in Greek. That's, that's power that's shown and expressed in supernatural strength. And then the last one, might, his might. Iskus, iskus in Greek, power that's inherent in something. A power that's capable to accomplish something. I like Calvin's analogy, John Calvin and his commentaries. He helps us with this. How do we think about these three types of power that God is exhibiting in his overall power? How do we think about that? Calvin said it's like a tree. It's like a tree. The fruit on the tree, that's God working out his power. You can see the fruit. It's been worked out of the tree. You can see it working. It's doing something. It's producing fruit. That's God's power producing something. And then he said, 
strength is like the trunk and the branches of the tree. Very strong. They're sturdy. They're there year round. You can look at God, you see his power. You can also look at God and see the fruit of his power, can't you? And then might. Might's like the root of the tree. You don't see it, but you know it's there. It's there. God's strength is there. The root of the tree holds it up, keeps it from falling over. It's hidden, but it's the strongest part of the tree because it's got to keep it from falling over. No analogy is perfect, but I think that helps in understanding how powerful is God. He does the work. We can look at him and see strength. And he has way more strength than we can even see. It's under the ground almost, like in the root of the tree. Paul prays that we would understand doctrine better. We need to know who God is. And one of the ways we can do that is seeing who he is, his attributes, and also seeing what he's done. And so Paul mixes this up and he just says, what's God done for you in the past? I want you to know that and I pray. I pray that you'll know what God's going to do for you in the future. And I pray that you know what God's doing for you right now. We need to know doctrine. How well do you know doctrine? How well do you know God? All of us could learn more. I recommend some great books on that. Pick up um, Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur. If you don't have that, that's a great big textbook. Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Read your Bible and then read these great books that point you back to Scripture and help you understand it. Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. John MacArthur's little book on none other, just the attributes of God. Learn doctrine. Doctrine's good. When somebody tells you your church is too doctrinal, you need to say, I'm glad. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord it's doctrinal. Now let's live out the doctrine that we learn. Lord, we do come before you and ask that you would help us to live for you. That includes, Lord, learning, learning more about you. Eternity is going to be continually worshiping and learning more about you as we live out our lives on the new earth. And I pray that you would do that now for us. I pray like Paul that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so we can see this truth in Scripture. Put faithful men and women around us so we can, we can learn from them. Put faithful books in our homes that point us to these truths in Scripture. And most of all, help us to, to read the Word, to study the Word, to even memorize your Word, to understand who you are, and what you've done, and what you're doing, and what you will do. We honor you. We praise you for this. You did not have to teach us all this, but you continue to do so. We love you for it. We're thankful for it. Amen.